Welcome to the Aging Intelligently podcast, where we share expertise about healthy, adventurous living, helping you to stay well and active, as well as explaining estate planning, care management, and end-of-life planning along the way. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. For additional photos and information, visit intelligentaging.com. Today, I'm going to ask Robert to address some of the myths surrounding estate planning that seem to never go away. Robert, how long have you been planning estates for your clients? For over 25 years now. Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's hard to believe that we're that old. Um, I've sat through an awful lot of your seminars, um, turning the pages and such. And and so I know the script pretty well. Um, And there seems to be a constant thing about the same myths or misunderstandings uh, seem to crop up over and over and over again. So let's talk about some of those things today. All right. Myth number one, estate planning is only for those people who are rich. Well, obviously that's not true. People people confuse the word. I think the word estate sometimes confuses people. Uh, when they hear the word estate, they, their mind automatically goes to mansions or, or things like that. And in reality, all an estate is, is everything that you own. So estate planning is simply putting a process into a place where you're Uh, laying out your plans of where you want your property to go at your death. Uh, It can be very simple in some cases, or it can be very complex. But but that's the thing. It's not for all. And in fact, some of the most contentious, you know, dirty estates, uh, litigation, court cases have been over very little. (laughs) So in in my experience, so, so the need for everyone to do estate planning uh, is there regardless of their net worth. So in regard to estate planning, what exactly are you referring to? Are we talking about just doing your will? That's another uh, misconception. People think that, that all they're doing is, is uh, planning for their death. Overall estate planning, uh, you're also planning for incapacity. So when you're thinking about planning for your death, you're obviously thinking about your last will and testament. Here is where I'm going to leave uh, my property at my death. Who is going to get it? How you want to lay out that process. Usually, you know, there'll be specific bequests where you have specific items of property or specific number of, of funds that, you know, for example, I leave my gun collection to Johnny Boy. That's a specific bequest. You've, you've, you've laid out a specific item of personal property and who you wanted to go to. You may say, I want to give each of my living grandchildren at my death $5,000. That's a specific bequest of money. So usually your your will will go through all of those specific things. And then it will usually end up with, I leave all the rest, residue, and remainder, which is I leave everything else to, and it's usually a spouse or children or a child or sometimes a charity or things like that. And the other big thing about doing your will is, you get to name who's going to administer your estate. You get to name who who you want to uh, be your executor. And so you pick the person that you want to administer these things. And usually you're picking a person of trust uh, that you trust to do the right thing. Uh, And a lot of times doing the right thing 
when you get back to that personal property, people always want to fight over personal property that may have very little, if any, monetary value, but the emotional or the family value of it is very significant. And sometimes just leaving those things undone uh, can lead to a world of trouble. So you need to think about those things as well. And I remember, just to give an example, I remember the case we had in the estate where they were fighting over grandmother's rocking chair. But grandmother's rocking chair had been left in mom's house and there was no proof it was grandmother's rocking chair. As far as we knew, it was mom's rocking chair. Right. You really have to lay out when you talk about tangible personal property, there are actually cottage industries popping up to help people distribute their, their personal property because it's become such a contentious thing. And it's something that you really need to give thought to. Uh, that's one of the things that the longer I've done this, uh, the need for purposeful planning or really thinking about your estate has grown more and more. So if you, let's say you don't own any real estate, you don't own your home and you live in an apartment, or maybe you're in the nursing home. And so the only thing you have is your personal property, um, your jewelry maybe that you're wearing or the personal property that your sister is holding for you because you are in the nursing home or, you know, the contents of your apartment your car, that sort of thing. Um, do they still need to have a will? Sure. Uh, and especially if they want to give those items to specific people. You know, obviously more and more people in our practice are going to, I direct my executor to sell all of my personal property. But usually- Or liquidate. Even, right. E but usually even that is done after they've said, they've taken care of those specific family items that are important to the generations and they put down who they want to give those specific things to and everything else that has no emotional or family value, liquidate, split money. Well, I know we've had a lot of problems with that sort of thing when people do a memorandum and they say, you know, this diamond ring goes to this daughter and this diamond ring goes to that daughter. Well, how do we know which diamond ring it is? Exactly. And then what if we can't find the diamond rings? What if they have had uh, some early dementia and or they've had AIDS coming in the home and people have stolen property or they've given stuff away and not made note of it? Well, again, that's why you need to update things. Uh, I was talking to someone last week where we were looking at an old document and they go, well, I don't own that anymore. And or I've sold that or I've already given that to my grandchild. And we can update those things because they need to be updated. Because if you die and those things are not clear, that's just another thing that can cause family contention. But the memorandum can actually be a separate document that is attached to the last will and testament. Is right. that right? Right. There's usually a... a, a a tangible personal property memorandum where you lay out where those specific items of personal property, who you want them to go to. And of course, just like any other estate planning document that needs to be updated on a regular basis. So just to be clear, we're, we are focusing in this just basically on the last will and testament. We're not really going into estate planning in regard to the, the powers of attorney. Well, that's the next myth. People think that estate planning is only talking about wills. But as you know, it is much more. You're planning for incapacity. And so there's where the powers of attorney come in. You name a healthcare power of attorney, that person you want to make your medical decisions on your behalf, or let me say that better, that person you want to carry out your decisions. Because we give all of our clients uh, a document that's provided by the American Bar Association, the Commission on Aging, that's called a healthcare decision-making toolkit. 
and it asks you a series of questions. If you're faced with this medical condition, what would you want and, and considerable? And so we urge our clients to work through that. And then once they work through that toolkit, now they have something to sit down with their spouse or their child and they can discuss, here's what I want for my life and my health care. If it gets to that, do you have the emotional makeup to carry out my decisions that I've made? I don't want you to make the decision. I want you to carry out the decision I've already made. And not every child can do that. You know, not every child has the emotional capacity to make those decisions on behalf of a parent. So that's why you have to work ahead of time to make sure you're naming the right person as your health care agent. You know, I tell everyone the story of my father. He had a brain tumor. And when he had his operation, as you know, that was like in the fall of the year, it was much more cancer than they expected. And it, the, the operation really didn't go well at all. And as you know, my father was miserable virtually for, for the rest of his life. So when that end of life time came, he was in a critical care unit and here comes a machine rolling down the hall and I stopped him before they went in his room and I said, what's this? And they said, well, your father's having trouble breathing. We want to put him on a respirator. And I didn't say no right away. The next question was, is it possible that he just needs this for a short period of time and then he will start breathing on his own? They said, yes, that's possible. So I said, by all means, hook it up because your agent wants to give you every chance to recover. Even if you've done living wills or things like that, that's not saying you don't want medical treatment. That's saying you, you don't want treatment to keep you alive artificially. So they hooked my father up to a respirator. About 45 minutes to an hour later, here comes some more machines down the hall. Uh, well, what's going on now was the question. And they said, well, your father's breathing's gotten worse and his kidneys are shutting down and things of that nature. And that's when I told them to stop, to get it all, all the machines out and to keep my father comfortable. Now, I didn't make that decision. That was a decision my father had told me long before that came uh, because he knew his condition after the surgery and he was just reiterating to me his wishes at end of life. And so I didn't have any trouble doing that because I wasn't making the decision. I was carrying out his decision. And that's the uh, part of incapacity uh, planning as part of your estate planning to make sure you have someone that will do that for you in those situations. And then obviously the durable power of attorney, someone trustworthy, someone that knows how to manage money to make sure that your bills are paid. If things have to be liquidated down the line, could sell your house if need be, those things like that. And powers of attorney are not one size fits all. The power of attorney I would do for a couple who has small children that are in their 30s is totally different than the power of attorney we do for someone who is retired and in their 60s or 70s. Uh, as or you, 80s. Exactly. As you age, you have to give your agent more power because the likelihood becomes more that your incapacity, instead of being for a short time as a younger person due to illness or accident, is going to be a chronic incapacity due to dementia or things of that nature. Right. Gosh, I had so many questions during all that time. <laughs> and that that was a lot. Um, I know it takes a huge amount of emotional strength to be able to make those decisions because those are hard decisions. Exactly. Um, and a lot of children do have a really hard time with 
uh, those decisions because they're torn between what their decisions, what their needs and their wants are versus what their parents' wishes are. Right. Exactly. And they get that confused. And that's the importance of, of giving some thought about who your healthcare agent is going to be. So in, in the discussion there, you were talking about that end of life uh, phase. So basically the powers of attorney are good for when you are incapacitated, but you're living right. and you're still actively living. Um, and, but there's that little area there where you're actively dying and that is the living will. Right, exactly. Uh, the living will is where you want to make your wishes known of how you want to be treated at the end of life. Right. Not and the last will and testament. That's after death. That's right. This is just the living will. Right. And most of the time we start off with uh, a pretty thorough living will that we start off with our clients and then we tailor it to different kinds of medical decisions or medical conditions they may have. For example, if we have a client that's on dialysis, we may need to add some specific language in there to address that medical condition. Uh, one you'll probably recall, we found out the hard way that if you're on any kind of psychotropic medicine or medicine for bipolar disorder or uh, things like that. Things with mental illness. Right. You really need to address that in your living will. Uh, we were named guardian for a lady who was in the hospital. She was unable to be discharged because uh, she was already uh, suffering from dementia. And when she was in the hospital, they had found out that she had terminal breast cancer and it was way past. It was non-discovered. And she and, was very, very young. Right. She was in her 50s. Yeah, she was uh, my age, but she was just not going to survive. Right. Yeah. And so we became her guardian so we could get her discharged. We discharged her to a nursing home. And then soon thereafter, due to the cancer, she went into hospice. Mm -hmm. Next thing we heard, she's in a psychiatric ward. Mm-hmm. And, and if you remember what had happened, she had went on hospice, so all of her medications were withdrawn except those for comfort. Well, one of those medications they withdrew was for a bipolar disorder, and she became very, very manic to the point she had to be hospitalized. And it, if you remember, it took some time for me to get hospice to agree, give her this medicine. We know it's not keeping her alive, but it is while she's every day she's on this earth, she needs this pill. Right. And and so for to, her mental stability and comfort. Right. right. And so so that can be addressed in a living will when you have things like that. So again, it's not cookie cutter. You've got to give these things some thought and you've got to be purposeful in your planning and really look at it that way. And if you, you look at it with purpose and intent from the very beginning, you're going to come out with a better document a better plan and just better results overall. Right. I, I think a lot of people just, they want to come. It's so uncomfortable for them to, to broach the subject that they just want to come in, blurt it all out and then run away and, and come back in and sign the documents and then run away again. Right. <laughs> it's really exactly. uncomfortable for people. But uh, like you said, the whole uh, purposeful planning is amazing. So let's say I've signed my will uh, what I'm, I'm all done now, right? <laughs> right? I'm done. I can rest easy. Well, no, because <laughs> why? now you've done a will. So let's just say you've done your will and you've left everything to your children. But then you realize the next time you go to renew a CD at the bank, it has what's called a POD designation on it 
which is payable on death. And in the stock market uh, brokerage account world, it's called TOD, transfer on death. So part of the estate planning process is not only doing your documents, to make, but also to make sure that these TODs, PODs, beneficiary clauses, survivorship clauses, make sure they all work together. Can you imagine what's going to happen when the will says everything to Johnny and then there's a $100,000 CD that's POD to Susie? Yeah, they, now, they blow up. They don't understand. Right. But if, there's, in our mind, though, to us, that's kind of like, okay, that goes to Susie and everything else goes to right. Johnny. If that's their purpose. Yes. Or did Susie do something and get written out of the will, but the client forgot to go back and change the CD? Right. So that's why not only is the time when you're doing your estate planning documents a time to think, you've got to think about all these designations and beneficiary clauses because they will rule. No matter what the will says, those clauses will rule because, in essence, that asset never gets to your probate estate. It and that passes includes, by that designation. That includes deeds, too, right? Correct. Survivorships on deeds and... and car um, titles. Car titles, all those kinds of things. So I'm going to throw this in here. You didn't put this in here, but it made me think of it. Can I write my own will? Uh can you work on your own pipes? Are you a plumber? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I make a mess. Uh, legally, yes, you I can. <laughs> you can do your own will. Uh, if you were ever going to do that, I would advise you do that all in your own hand. Uh, you don't type it because technically once you start typing it, you, you run into another set of problems. Do it all in your own hand and get somebody that knows you very well to witness it, who knows your handwriting and just get them to witness but it. But you still and be have done. to have... Don't you have to still have it like twice witnessed? And now, that's only if you're going to do a will, what's called a self-proving will. See, when you do the reason, if you do a handwritten will and you have two people witness it, when that gets offered for probate, the clerk is then going to send a form out to those witnesses to have them verify, yes, this is so-and-so's will. That they remember and I having right. seen that. That proves the will. Okay. Our wills or wills that are done by attorney are called self-proving because not only are they witnessed, they are also witnessed and notarized. So in, in our case, the document proves itself. There's no further need of proof once you take that will to the clerk's office. Whereas if you take a handwritten will, you've still got another step to go to find those witnesses to prove that that will so that's much right. harder because those people could be dead. I know Correct. we've had that problem before, but we've also had people who have written their own wills and then they were not even witnessed. No. And so that's just nothing. Uh, there is a, a, a way in Virginia that you could try to get the court to authenticate a will, but it would be a lot more, trust me, it's a lot more expensive to do that than it would be to come to a lawyer to get it done. Correctly in the first place. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. People don't really understand that doing it yourself can actually cost more in the end. Much more. Much more. <laughs> <laughs> Do it right from the beginning with the right tools, right? right. The, the best tools. Um, so once I put a plan in place, um, am, am I just done? I don't have to think about it anymore. No, it's, it's like anything else. You need to review it from time to time. And there are certain things that could make you want to review it immediately. 
life changes, family changes, divorces, remarriages, adoption of children, having children, uh, you know, deaths of siblings, children becoming incapacitated, having special needs children. There are all these things that would at least require you to go to your attorney, go over the document, tell them your situation now and have your attorney advise you whether your document as it stands covers that or whether there needs to be a codicil or a new will altogether. Um, because without doing that, that could lead to some of the biggest, biggest problems we see because when there's a second marriage and there are children from a previous marriage, without the proper will in place to address that situation, that could lead to some of the most contentious probate issues that I've seen in 25 years, where you end up with children from a previous marriage feuding with the surviving spouse who is not their parent. Right. Because uh, very often when people are doing their will they uh, and they're married, they leave everything to each other first and then to the children after that, depending on who's surviving. But they try to respect each other's children too, you know, especially if it's a blended family. Right. And, and blended families, more and more, you really should use trusts when you're planning for blended families to make sure that all of those children are created equally because uh, myself and any other estate planning attorney can tell you certainly stories of as soon as the funeral's over, surviving spouse comes in, presents her will. I want to change it. I'm taking my previous husband's, my late husband's children out of the will. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's nothing we can really do about that other than, you know, we wouldn't do it because they were our client and we wouldn't do a, a will that would go against those wishes, but they can certainly go to the next estate planning lawyer down the street and they'll get those changes made. Whereas by putting trusts in place, the spouses ensure each other are cared for for their lives and all children are, create, are, are treated equally if that's what they want. But let's talk about like when somebody first gets diagnosed, um, you know, with some sort of chronic illness that is going to lead to incapacitation or death. Um, and they've left everything to each other, uh, not to get too much into asset protection, but that leaving everything to each other first can be a very big issue should asset protection need to happen. And let's say the surviving spouse is the one that's on Medicaid. Right, exactly. You don't, when, when you have a spouse that's looking at long-term care and we may be able to get them on public benefits, then the wills are going to have to be changed because there the situation you're trying to prevent against is the untimely death of the community spouse, the spouse who's still at home, passing away before the spouse that's in the nursing home or needing long-term care. In those instances, if that happened, they're immediately coming off their public benefits and they're starting a spin down where there are ways that we can change the will to make sure that that surviving spouse gets what's coming to them under the law. But again, it's held up in a trust uh, so that it doesn't have to be spin, spent down immediately. So yes, that's another one of those life situations, the need for long-term care, where you want your documents looked at and they'll certainly have to be revised. Right. But that can be, you know, that's a whole lot of drama right there when people think that they can come in at the last minute 
to protect assets or change their will or whatever, and somebody's already got dementia. Right. It's according to what level of incapacity they already have. If it's somebody that's just got the diagnosis, most of the time they still have capacity and they're able to execute documents. But, but there, are, there have been occasions where the you doctor, can't do anything. Right. The, the doctor won't certify that they have capacity to execute documents. And then we either have to go to court to create a conservatorship or a guardianship and, and to ask the court to give us those estate planning powers that we need. To, and that's to so much more around. expensive, much more expensive than pre-planning. And, and obviously, you know, making a phone call to your attorney is much cheaper <laughs> to say, hey, this is what's going on. Do I need an appointment yeah. versus uh, just waiting to see how the chips are going to fall? Because um, we pretty much have been through almost everything, it seems like. Um, so the last one, myth five, um, if I were to pass away without a will, um, the state will receive all of my assets. That is certainly a myth. Uh, there are instances where the, the state would receive your assets, but that would only be if no family member is found. Uh, we actually, you, you know. But then, even then, they don't actually receive it, isn't it? Like put into some sort it of. Goes, it goes into what's called an escheat process, and we certainly don't want to go down that black hole. But there is a potential that that your your estate could go to the state, the state of Virginia. Uh, but you know, there are laws of intestacy, and intestacy is if you die without a will. And so the law says if you die without a will, there's a pecking order that they're looking for to look for family members. Obviously, they're looking for a spouse. If you don't have a spouse, they're looking for children. If you don't have children, they're looking for parents. If you don't have parents, they're looking for siblings. If you don't have siblings, they're looking for nieces and nephews. So you see the law is trying its best to find blood relatives for your estate to pass to. Uh, only if all of those were exhausted and there was nobody, if I was an executor and I could not find a family member, then I would start the process of escheating it to the state. And you folks listening to this may notice in your paper, every six months or so, there'll be an entire section of the paper full of names, uh, single space names, that if you're one of those, contact this number. That's the people where they, the state has their property and they are still looking for family members to claim that property. That's crazy. It is. So what happened to, I, I remember we had like a case recently where the brother thought he was going to inherit everything, but you needed to find a will. Right. In that case, uh, a brother had been told by the decedent that I've left you everything, which infers that he did and a that will. that was right near his death. Right. Too. He did a will and left him everything. Uh, but this man also had a son. So his son would be his heir if there wasn't a will. And so no will had been found. And so the court appointed me as a third party curator for the sole purposes of trying to locate the will. And in this case, the son uh, was incarcerated. So a, a guardian ad litem, another attorney was appointed to protect his interests in the case, to make sure his rights were protected. Uh, the only two areas that had not been checked for a will was a safe deposit box and a safe supposedly on the property somewhere. When we opened the safe deposit box with witnesses and videotape, the only thing that was in the safe deposit box was an owner's manual for a safe. <laughs> and it also had a combination written on it. So uh, we made a, uh, 
time to, to get together again. About a week later, we all met on the property. We looked in the home, no safe. We looked into a smaller building on the property, no safe. Finally, we looked into a garage and the garage was not only full of cars and some antique cars, the biggest safe I've ever seen in my life was over in the corner. It was bigger than a refrigerator and it had the double doors where you would pull open. And the locksmith was there and he tried the combination that was written on the owner's manual and it opened right away. Uh, the guardian ad litem was videotaping the open, opening of the safe and the safe had all kinds of stuff in it, guns, weapons, uh, cash, things of that nature, but no will. So oh. we, we closed the safe back up and, and spun the, the dial and reported back to the court that we have, we, you know, we looked for the safe, the will, no will was there to be found. So he must have thought he did a will or something. So basically you're saying that he told the brother he was going to receive everything, but instead it was all going to his son who he hadn't talked to in years, who was actually a felon. What? Whoever, right. Yeah, that's crazy. That's so sad. I'm sure the brother was really upset. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, is there anything else that we need to, that you think you want to bring? Well, the biggest thing is everyone needs to do estate planning. Regardless of your the assets that you own, regardless of your net worth, you need to do estate planning because it's much more than a will, as we've discussed. It's powers of attorney. It's living wills. It's how you want to be treated at the end of life with dignity and, and to make sure that the decisions you've made are going to be carried out. So it's much more than that. It's something that everyone needs to do. Right. And even if you have very little, those personal items need to be designated to whom they go just for clarity, because even if let's say you you were to die in a nursing home, um, you know, if, if you don't have a person designated as to who's supposed to come get this stuff, then they just, you know, it becomes a donation. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate the conversation. Thanks a lot. This episode was sponsored by the Estate and Elder Law Center of Southside, Virginia, helping you prepare for generations to come. A relationship, not just representation. Find us at VAElderLaw.com. That's V-A-E-L-D-E-R-L-A-W.com. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Feel free to message us if you have any questions. Be sure to like and to follow Aging Intelligently on our Facebook, Instagram, and especially our podcast, so you'll have all the latest updates. Thank you for joining us again.